We are proud to announce WrestleCopia brand and the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, which you can find over at www.wrestlecopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com. You may have heard me mention the WrestleCopia brand in passing on a variety of our shows. You might be asking, what is WrestleCopia? Well, the name derives from the words wrestle for wrestling and copia, which is defined as having plenty or an abundance of. It's abundance of wrestling history over at WrestleCopia.com as the podcast never continues to grow with a variety of podcasts. Everything from our show, The Wrestling Memory Grenade, where we take a trip down memory lane to wrestling history's past as we analyze and dissect complete years of wrestling history from your favorite promotions, to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, an in-depth look and weekly breakdown of the entire Raw vs. Nitro War. TR Shocks the World, where host Tom Robinson makes his long away to return to the wrestling airwaves. Tom does everything from break down the current product to share inside stories and memories from years gone by. It's discretion advised as TR shocks the world with his strong opinions, hilarious impressions, and so much more. The WrestleCopia News Network is a special feature podcast. You can expect more late-breaking news, timely discussions, and tributes to the fallen legends on future episodes of WCNN. We've also got other podcasts being prepped for their debuts, including a territory-based show we like to call The Money and the Miles. There's an old saying in the world of professional wrestling that nothing in this business is real except the money made and the miles traveled. In this podcast, we discuss the territory era, with shows focusing on everything from show reviews to yearly breakdowns to episodes focusing on some of the rare, lesser-known territories and outlaw promotions of yesteryear. Stop on over to WrestleCopia.com for all the latest shows and follow us on Twitter, at WrestleCopia. That's on Twitter, at WrestleCopia, for all the latest news and information on the podcast network. Guys, welcome back to another edition of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. I think we're on episode 21 now. I am your host, Ray Russell. Joining me, Mr. Steve Ekstat. Still with us here. Steve, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. We're going to jump right into things, too. Remember, guys, now, Nitro's expanded to two hours, so we do one week of TV every week here on Monday Warfare. This week, we're doing June 3rd, 1996, WWF Monday Night Raw, WCW Monday Nitro. And we're going to kick things off talking about Monday Night Raw. But before we do, we always look at a little bit of WWF news. And we're going to talk about Stone Cold Steve Austin, who recently lost Ted DiBiase as his manager after losing a strap match to Savio Vega, in which DiBiase said if Austin lost, he would leave the WWF. Of course, we know DiBiase on his way to WCW. But in WWF storylines, nah, nah, hey, hey, goodbye. We see a recap later on Raw of the end of Ted DiBiase here as Stone Cold's manager. But it was on Superstars over the weekend that Steve Austin did a TV interview basically saying that he wasn't really trying hard to beat Savio in the strap match because he was happy to get rid of DiBiase. Calls him excess baggage. DeMelt says, and I thought the same thing too, Steve, the interview made no sense since it was such a heated match and the the way the match went made this idea that Steve Austin was not trying to win, it made no sense. 
Who goes out there and doesn't try? Who goes out there and puts on the effort, the fight that we saw between Savio and Austin and Beware of Dog? And then they write this. I get what they were going for here. Like Austin kind of contributed to purposely ousting his manager, but you don't go through 22 minutes of hell in a strap match with Savio Vega and then lose on purpose. It wasn't the most thought out idea. No, it definitely wasn't. If he's half-assing it, then the effort that he put in makes him look like his half-assed efforts. Better than most people, which I know that's not what they're even trying for here. Either. I think it's just a shot at DiBiase for leaving. Like, Austin wanted him gone. He was tired of dealing with this shit and carrying him, so he was done. And yeah, uh, yeah. that's kind of what they're going for, but it made absolutely no sense because you just shit all over like. It's like he didn't even care about Savio either. It was like on to bigger and better things. Yeah, he kind of uh, shit on the match, gone. which was like one of the greatest matches this year so far in the company. Period. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Pretty and, bad and, idea. And if you were half-assing that match, you should go on to become a multiple-time world champ. Oh, never mind. Okay. Anyways, let's go on here with this show. <laughs> we talk about WWF attorneys now. They have sent a letter to both Scott Hall and WCW about the portrayal of Scott Hall on Nitro last week as if he's still working for the WWF. The letter sent to WCW and Hall seemed to make no difference to WCW because... Well, we'll see later on here on Nitro. They don't, they don't really seem to care about this letter the WWF sent to them at this point in time. We'll talk about that when we get to Nitro. Uh, also, the big news here right before we go into Raw is the British Bulldog has announced his departure from the WWF when his contract expires. Of course, this doesn't happen for everybody scratching their heads like, wait a minute. But his contract is set to expire in August of 1996 here, and he's let Vince McMahon know, you know what, I'm done here. And a lot of people uh, use this ongoing angle. We talked about this a little bit last week uh, where they've canceled this angle now between Shawn Michaels and Diana Smith and all that good stuff. McMahon quietly says here on this episode of Raw, the lawsuit involving the Smith family and Shawn Michaels, which was announced originally at the pay-per-view just eight days earlier, was dropped. And they've changed the heat to teasing a new prospective lawsuit between Clarence Mason and WW President Gorilla Monsoon. The latter storyline seemed to have been pre-planned, says DeMeltz, since Mason had already shown up with a neck brace at the pay-per-view and was walking with the cane and had the sling and all that good stuff. So we basically want to continue. They haven't learned anything, by the way, Steve. They want to continue the feud, but they need these backstories that have nothing to do with the actual wrestlers. Well, I guess the Diana Smith one had more than this Clarence Mason shit does. But still, instead of just having these guys make it about the belt, it's got to be about something completely different. And... They don't really go very far with this Clarence Mason Gorilla Monsoon thing, as best I can remember. But what do you make of this? Uh, obviously, Vince has changed directions because he he wants the Bulldog to stay. He doesn't want to have him upset because Smith family, the Hart family, they're not really happy with this storyline right now because, you know, just like Brett, everything's real on TV and they don't want their daughter portrayed as this here. <laughs> um, I, I get where they're going with it and I get why... I can understand why the Hart family would be upset, but if you know this going in, why would you even let it start to begin with? If you knew this was the end game, uh, I'm not saying they did, but if they did, why would you even do any of it? So I get that, but I also can see why Vince would be apprehensive to lose somebody like Davey Boy just because he's already out, you know, Hall, Nash, DiBiase, Xbox coming up, and, and so he's losing a lot of guys, so he can't afford to lose another one. Who's been in, who's in his main event picture? So he, I, I could see like Davey clearly saw that he had leverage, 
And he took advantage of it and got this angle stopped because Vince is at this point where he can't afford to lose anyone else. Yeah, and, and Davy so, um, was smart, or somebody in Davy's ear was smart, because he gave the 90-day notice, which was required, that he wasn't going to renew his contract at the end of August. Because by May 28th, that's when Vince had gotten word that Smith had given the notice. And uh, that, that was uh, it wasn't because he was talking with WCW. He wasn't going to WCW at this point. There was no ongoing you know, thing like Hall and Nash and, and DiBiase and those guys like you mentioned. And even Meltzer said, at least according to one, uh, one of his sources, uh, what good that is, I don't know. But it's, it's and, and I get this, that maybe Davey did this just to play, you know, play some shenanigans in there and begin some talk of uh, renegotiating a contract, maybe get a, get a few more bucks moving forward. I can't say I blame him there either. <laughs> business is business. You do what you got to do to get paper. I mean, it's that's really the bottom line in all of this is at the end of the day, it's entertainment and it's about making money. Uh, that's really it. And if it's anything otherwise, then they're probably lying to you. Yeah, so it makes sense to me. I would do the same thing. It's reported that Vince McMahon and Davey Boy finally talked on June 1st, which was just two days prior to this episode of Raw, and they're scheduled for a meeting about the British Bulldogs' future in Titan Sports on June 6th at which point Smith and McMahon and, and uh, the company are both expected to be clear about his future plans. Of course, we know the Bulldog sticks around for a while longer, so we'll move on to WWF Monday Night Raw, June 3rd, 1996. I don't really want to move on, but that's what we're going to do. Taped last week, May 27th in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Cumberland County Memorial Auditorium. Whew, that's a lot of words. Last week, we see clips of the Ahmed Johnson and Goldust, quote-unquote, kiss at the end of the show. <laughs> we get a voiceover from Goldust, and then we pan to Goldust, laying in a gold robe and the intercontinental title belt draped over his <sighs> gold cock. Goldust uh, presumably naked underneath the uh, gold belt, and uh, that was disturbing, <laughs> to say the least. Goldust says if Ahmed Johnson wants the intercontinental title, mm, come and get it, big boy. So here we go. <laughs> the way we ended the show last week, we, we kicked things off right away again. More of this Goldust stuff. Ugh, nasty. <laughs> it's very <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, uh, but, uh, whatever. It gets worse as, we, as the show moves on uh, <laughs> with the interview. Oh, my God. So Ooh, we, Only in 96. Yeah. Yeah, only in uh, yeah peak gold dust time here. As we <laughs> oh kick off God. the show, it's Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler. Vince then confirms the Intercontinental title match has been signed at King of the Ring. Ahmed will challenge Goldust for that Intercontinental title as we go to the ring. It's a King of the Ring qualifier. Stone Cold Steve Austin, now without Ted DiBiase, taking on Bob Sparkplug Holly. Vince explains on commentary DiBiase's absence. We get the highlights of both strap matches, both the one in the dark and on Tuesday, last Tuesday, when Savio beat Austin for the second time and thus DiBiase left the WWF. As the match gets going, it's a wrestling match, a solid little wrestling match on TV, back and forth. Austin tries to take over on with some chops, but hey, Bob Holly proves he can chop too here. But Austin finally takes over. He dominates. He's relentless. He's all over Bob Holly, one move after another. It's really good stuff. It's a classic heel Steve Austin here. As we go into a commercial break, we come back and we see it's not Steve Austin nor Bob Holly. It's Goldust still lying naked, stroking his title belt. As we go back to the ring, Bob Holly makes the comeback. 
and reverse turnbuckle smash on Austin, and he crotches Austin on the top rope as well. We get the 10 punches of doom in the corner, but Austin simply pushes Bob Holly off like a job guy and locks in the million-dollar dream, which Vince now simply calls a sleeper hold for obvious reasons. Austin picks up the win in 10 minutes to meet Bob Holly here. Uh, terrible. <laughs> and this was the best thing on the just, show. Uh, it was not good. <laughs> um, it seemed like it didn't work. The match just didn't work for me. It, it was very slow and methodical. Austin was going from move to move, but there was too much time in between the moves, and he was kind of just walking around, and Bob Holly's comeback was terrible. I mean, it, I don't know if it was just a bad time for me to watch this show. Or what the deal was, but I just my notes are just more rest holds and nothing happening. It just felt like long rest holds after another. It was boring. Yeah, I felt like they for me. It felt like they told these guys, "You guys got ten minutes, go." And I'm not saying these guys couldn't have put something together. I mean, Steve Austin's out there long before all of his injuries, so he can certainly do something. Bob Holly's good at a comeback and, and your your other typical stuff in the ring. So this could have been more exciting than it was for sure. This was okay for TV, still far too long for what it was. If you cut out all yeah. the rest holds, this match, you know, would have been cut in half. Uh, but you could, I guess you could say that about any match that, that's filled with rest holds. But yeah, so here we <laughs> yeah. go. Austin qualifies for the King of the Ring, and the, the rest, as they say, will be history as Austin heads to the 1996 King of the Ring. And uh, yeah, picks up the win with the Million Dollar Dream, so he hasn't changed finishers yet. But it's no longer called the Million Dollar Dream, so it's a good time to move on. Another good deal with DiBiase leaving. Austin didn't really need DiBiase to begin with as a mouthpiece or otherwise in the corner. It wasn't helping him at all, and he didn't need the million-dollar belt, and he certainly didn't need this hold. So all of this works out pretty good for Stone Cold, DiBiase leaving the company. Yeah, I wonder how it turns out for that guy. <laughs> so do you remember last week we were talking about the Gold Dust and Warrior match, and both guys were counted out. And DeMeltz hypothesized, of course, because he already had the results, that they had screwed up, that Lawler was supposed to have caused the Warrior to be counted out by not allowing him back to the ring in time, but it was Warrior that was too slow to get to the spot when we clearly saw that was, that was Jerry Lawler's uh, fault. Not the Warriors. Lawler didn't even get up from the, uh, the, the desk until the count of nine. So, but on commentary this week, we hear Vince McMahon. He claims they rewrite history here, as did the Meltz that Lawler caused the Warrior to be counted out last week. Now, if you actually watched last week's Raw, you know that's simply not true, but here this week, that's the way they played up with the clip that they show. And the Raw clip is played to make you believe the narrative that, yes, Lawler cost the Warrior the, uh, the, the match. So that leads to the announcement of the Ultimate Warrior taking on Jerry the King Lawler at King of the Ring. What a barn burner that'll be. Jerry Lawler then talks about the Ultimate Warrior's comic book. And... Lawler making it his own cover for his own comic book, King Comics. And it shows King standing tall over what he writes on the comic book cover as the ultimate loser. So there's that match at, Russell, uh, at King of the Ring. Man, sounds like a tremendous five-star classic coming up. No, I, I think it's cool that uh, they kind of shit all over Meltzer blaming Warrior. I know that's not their intent here at all, but. If you believe Meltzer, it was all Warrior's fault that he missed a cue or did something or was blown up or whatever the case may be. But um, no, it was clearly what they wanted to happen was Lawler causing the de- the count out and Lawler just missed his cue or whatever happened, happened. Um, but that comic book cover that Lawler drew was just awesome. 
So good. I love his art. His art is awesome. Yeah, I, lo- I love going back and looking at all of Lawler's old art that he, where he would draw the covers of all of the old programs from the Memphis Territory. Those were always really, really cool to go back and, and check out as well. We go back to the ring, though. It's Mankind taking on, I didn't know he was still here, Barry Horowitz, still with the company, apparently. But before the match backstage, we see Jim Ross talking all about The Undertaker versus Mankind, also now announced for King of the Ring. Boy, they're just throwing every single match <laughs> for the paper, they're announcing every single one of them in this one episode of Raw. I guess they feel like that would make up for the, the matches that they're giving us here. We see clips of Mankind from the In Your House Beware of Dog, where he's, he somehow magically appears in the casket and costs The Undertaker the match against Goldust last Tuesday night. And as we get in the ring, Barry Horowitz, not only is he still here, he still has entrance music. Hava Nagila plays in the background, but that's about it for Barry because Mankind dominates. We even see the Tree of Woe into the running elbow drop in the corner. And we go to commercial in the middle of a squash match, Steve. And when we come back, it's right into the mandible claw. Five minutes. <laughs> That's it. Uh, I don't like there is a spot where Foley or Mankind here was doing something and he just fell out of the ring. I, I, I don't know what he was. I think he was putting the boot to him like to choke him. And he fell out of the ring, and then I think he <laughs> drug Horowitz out. And I'm like, this is a squash, and Foley looks like shit. Like, it, it was so bad. And that's the theme for this whole show. It just didn't connect. It didn't work. And it was just very sloppy. I, I don't know if it was timing was off or what the deal was, but he's tried to choke him with his boot, and I think he falls through the ropes, and then Horowitz, he just grabs Horowitz out, and then they go back in. But it was, it was very sloppy, not very good. Even for a squash match. I like the Tree of Woe spot with the elbow. Mm-hmm. I always enjoyed that move by Foley because this is just a different way to use the Tree of Woe compared to what you normally see. Right. So um, pretty cool offense. But other than that, like, just bad. It was bad. Yeah. I. Uh, you know, another thing that really stuck out to me here was the commercial break. It's a squash match. It's, it's the definition of a squash match here. Barry Horowitz is not rocking offense at all here. They go into a commercial break. No. They come back and straight into the finisher immediately. And there's some more odd commercial breaks coming up here in this show. So I'll touch more on that later on as we go along here on Raw. We go to Jim Ross ringside who has a promo with Mankind. And uh, I suppose at this point the break before the finish was maybe to keep people tuned in. Although I don't know why they would continue to tune into a mankind Barry Horowitz match. But maybe they knew they were going to use the rest of this segment for a Jim Ross promo. So that's why we did this here. Mankind tells Jim Ross, you can do anything to McFoley because he's already lost everything. And of all the things he's lost, he thinks he misses his mind the most. It's basically, you can't hurt what's already dead. And then, of course, The Undertaker being dead. They're kind of playing from the same field here almost. This is my favorite part of the whole show. I'll give it away. I mean, it's hard to give away to like a two-minute interview, but uh, Mankind is still like... uh, the best part of him to me is his promos during this time. Mm-hmm. And I like, I don't say a lot of good things about Mick Foley. He's not like one of my favorite people. He's not one of my favorite wrestlers, whatever. I don't buy into a lot of the stuff that he tries to sell and his matches and stuff. Just not for me, but 90, 1995 ECW, all his promos is just like a whole other level of what a promo can be. And just telling a story within the time frame that you're given. And then he carried that over into Mankind. So I, I enjoy his promo work during this run. But that's about it. 
Yes, so we've already learned Ahmed and Goldust, Lawler and the Warrior, and now we see clips from last week's In Your House Beware of Dog, the double pin, HBK pins Bulldog, Bulldog pins HBK, so a rematch now announced for King of the Ring. They're filling up this entire pay-per-view all in one episode of Raw, and now it's time for Vince McMahon to interview Goldust naked in his den. Uh, we go back to last week. Once again, it's the mouth-to-mouth clip with Ahmed Johnson. Ahmed snaps. Down the stairs he goes, snatches Bob Holly up and chokes him up against the, the wall, and then, boom, plows that poor job guy through the door. Goldie then begins quoting the color purple. I'm not going to quote it here. I just wrote, ugh. Golda says he simply did what he should have done. He revived Ahmed Johnson. What else was he supposed to do? Allow Ahmed to expire? Vince says Ahmed didn't need mouth-to-mouth, damn it. And Goldust calls the whole ex- ex- the entire experience exhilarating. Like eating a chocolate candy bar, Steve. Goldust then whips, oh a, whips a chocolate candy bar out of nowhere. I don't know, want to know where he got that candy bar from. And then licks up the candy bar made of chocolate and bites on that chocolate, Steve. And now Ahmed can share that very taste. Goldust then begins to play with his nipples as Vince McMahon continues to ask him questions. And then he talks about the mighty Mandingo, Ahmed Johnson at King of the Ring. Uh, At King of the Ring, Goldust will find the golden ticket, Willy Wonka style. This time, Ahmed will melt in Goldust's hands and not in his mouth. I wrote, geez. It seemed like we moved away from this a little bit, and no, it was full blown on. Not, a, I mean, we're right back into the the deep of it here. Yeah, this was. <laughs> it, it's uh, it's something else, you know. Just sitting there eating the chocolate bar. I think it was like a crunch bar. So I, they probably went with that just so you could hear the noise of what he was doing. Um, but he's laying there. He's oh laying there in God. his wig, naked. By the way, right with the belt over his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gimmick. So it's. Yeah, it's, um, I don't even know what to say about it, to be honest. It's so, like, so far gone from what wrestling is or should be. Right. Not knocking it, it's whatever, but to me, this is, this is not wrestling. This is, this is a movie or a, uh, which plays off Goldust, because that's what his gimmick is, is a movie. So he's just playing an act, so to speak, but wow. <laughs> This is like you get to the front of the envelope and then you just decide to push it 100 yards back down the field or something. He's They're just pushing the envelope as far as they can without pissing somebody off. And I know they piss people off um, with this stuff. So there's absolutely no way they didn't. Wow. Just it's, it's so crazy to even think that this was on TV in 1996. Yeah, you know, this feud feels like it could be a throwaway feud, almost like the Undertaker Goldust feud that we got for about three weeks there. But, boy, did they put a lot of effort into this. Did Goldust put a lot of effort into this between uh, the story they did last week on TV, the <laughs> angle they shot at the end of the show, and then this this promo here this week? Wow. <laughs> That's really, if, you, if you guys haven't seen this or you haven't seen it in a long time or you forgot about it, definitely go watch it. Because it's just going to leave you like, wow, you're just baffled by it, really. It's so incredible. I mean, it's good work for Goldust. I mean, he's buying into his character, and that's all you can really do as a performer. 
it may be shit, but he's probably loving this. He's separating himself from what his dad it was. He's doing something on his own and establishing himself in the business. So I'm sure he's having fun doing these things. But it's man, it's something else. Yeah, that's uh that's that's a couple words for it. It was definitely interesting. You know, <laughs> I know I haven't watched and listened to this promo since it originally aired. So some of the stuff I'm hearing for the basically the first time because I don't remember it, right? The, some of the lines here. Now, right. my one of my sons, it seems like his thing to do every every summer is start plowing through the old Raws. And uh, he'll get through 93, 94, 95, 96. It's easy to do. They're, they're 45 minutes each. And I've probably seen him watch this at some point. Again, I, it's, oh, there's another Naked Gold Dust promo. So I'm not paying attention, right? This time I'm forced to listen to this promo. Absolutely insane, some of the, the stuff coming out of his mouth. I mean, from the, the basic little Mighty Mandango line all the way to the Melting in, you know, my hand, not in my mouth. He's licking chocolate bars. Call, he can't wait. To, he tasted his first taste of chocolate. I, wow, it's yeah, it, yeah, it's, and he overemphasizes every sexual aspect of what he's saying. It's like the the basic words are flat, but then you get to like licking the chocolate. Like he just, just the way he delivers it is. Uh, it gets the point across of what he's trying to do. So <laughs> yeah. excellent work by him. I mean, it's really, it really is like, it's tremendous work by him to be able to deliver the lines and do these things. I'd be dying laughing if it was my job, but he handles it like a pro. So good on him. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. Indeed. <laughs> so we cut straight away from the gold dust promo right into a match involving the Godwins accompanied by hillbilly Jim taking on techno team 2000 because they're randomly back after being here for like three weeks last year. Sonny on commentary for this match. And we get a backstage promo during this match from the Body Donnas. They're on a worldwide search for a new manager. Send your letters and cards to the P.O. Box address on the screen, Steve, so that the WWF can get your address and send out their merchandise catalogs, because that's really what this was all about. In the ring, the Techno team look absolutely ridiculous. This time around in 96, they're sporting eye makeup. And especially at their size, the, the costumes they have them wearing and this silver eyeliner or eyeshadow. And it's, uh, for those who don't know, they're Troy and Travis Techno Team 2000. Uh, apparently they're from the future. That was never really established. Again, they were there for like three weeks in 95 and here for another three weeks here in 96. Uh, it's Eric Watts, the son of cowboy Bill Watts and Chad Fortune, who would probably go on best known to be in WCW later on down the line. But here, they're Techno Team 2000, but this match isn't about them, Steve. It's really not even about the Godwins. It's about Sonny. Uh, and the, the fans seem to think so because they even chant Sonny during this match while she's sitting there on commentary. I wrote, at this point, she's managed the Body Donnas. She's managed the Godwins. She's managed the Smoking Guns. Sonny is the tag team division here in 1996. Pretty much. It starts with her and it ends with her. Because whoever she's with has the belts. That changes a little bit down the road with uh, Davey and Owen. But, um, yeah, <laughs> for the first half of the year and going into the second half, it's all sunny. It's uh, her teams, and that's it. Uh, this tag division, division is terrible. It's so bad. And uh, we'll just get to the match here. Sure, there's not much to it. It's really not a whole lot going on. There was a nice little cool double pump boot. Uh, by Techno Team on Phineas as we go straight into commercial break. When we come back, Techno uh, go for an assisted gourd buster splash on top of Phineas, but Phineas gets his knees up. 
and it's straight to the hot tag, right out of commercial to Henry Godwin, and there is no reaction from the crowd, Steve. None. I don't mean it's quiet. I don't mean it's lukewarm. This hot tag was not a, I don't know, it was a cold tag. This crowd could have cared less what the hell was going on in the ring. They were dead. Remember, there were sunny chants earlier in this match. Now we get nothing for a hot tag. This crowd does not care, and neither do I. Eric Watts, though, mm. does launch Chad Fortune high into the air over his head for a stinger splash in the corner, but Henry Godwin moves out of the way. Henry then lays out Eric Watts and the slop drop on Chad Fortune. Henry does it all by himself, picks up the win. This went seven minutes, and again, another odd commercial break because they go to commercial right when the heels are going to get, or I guess neither team was really a heel, but techno teams start to get heat. We go to commercial, we come back, it's the hot tag. And I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, Me too. <laughs> but at the same time, some really odd choices in the commercial breaks here this week. But seven minutes, the Godwins pick up this win here. And that was, uh, that was a thing. Mm. Yeah, this was terrible. And I, I noticed the, uh, the no response to Hank. And it almost looked like Hank was like pissed off for being into this because he got the high tag and then it was almost over like a yeah. minute later. It felt like, uh, he came in and hit the slop drop and was like, I'm done with this shit. So we're going to the back, but uh, no, this this match was it's pretty rough too. Like, it, it, I mean, it was okay for the most part, but it's just I don't care. I don't care about the tag team division. I don't care about the Godwins. I don't care about Techno Team because they come and go when whenever they need them. So I mean, there's no, there's nothing here to even care about, and I'm clearly not the only one because Henry gets the hot tag and the crowd's just sitting on their uh, hands, can care less. I don't even think they got a pop for the slap drop. I think the crowd was grateful when this one was over. I know. I sure was. And then it's Vince McMahon interviews Clarence Mason on the phone. We see a clip of Gorilla Monsoon ushering Mason away with Diana Smith to keep up with the protection order, keeping Diana away from Shawn Michaels on Raw in prior weeks. So Mason says he's now in a neck brace. Of course, walking with the cane and the sling, all because Gorilla Monsoon touched him on the arm. He's going to sue Gorilla for aggravated assault and battery. We talked about this last week, I believe. Of course, we talked about them. And again, this week, we talked about the dropping of the Davy Boy Diana HBK love triangle shit. And now they're trying to move to this. And it just seems ludicrous. I, I see what they're going for here, but you're playing up almost. It's not meant to be a comedy angle, but almost a comedy angle here with the, uh, the old attorney bit where I'm going to sue you, you know, the, the ambulance chasing attorney guy here in the middle of a main event world title picture. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know why you would do this. And the footage that backs up his claim, it's just Gorilla has his hand on his back and pushes him a little bit, and he's in the neck brace over this. I mean, I feel like in 96 they were turning a corner almost to where this stuff wasn't needed or going on. Goldust aside, they were kind of pretty serious and more realistic in their shit. And then they do this. So it was completely, it felt counterproductive. And I just, I don't know why they would go this route. It makes no sense to me, but thankfully I don't think it lasts too long. Yeah. You can almost see all the different guy, the, all the different writers, if you want to call them writers at the time, the bookers that helped Vince McMahon at this point, you can kind of see their prints on the different things going on gold dust. So you think maybe Vince Russo's starting to get his, his say on some of the stuff going on here in the WWE. But at the same time, you see something like Clarence Mason and this, silly whiplash gimmick here and you have to go bruce pritchard because he knows vince's sense of humor and i could see bruce coming up with this to make vince laugh oh that's great 
I, I love uh, con artist attorneys, pal. <laughs> so right, I can, so. yeah, it's it's kind of all over the place. Is it? Would it be just those two or? Well, did, Pat's uh, in there. Pat, like Pat like the Pat. Pat like the Gaga, right? But I don't know that that's Pat's kind of comedy. That seems more like the the Bruce. Hey, boss, I got a great idea. You know, it's like I saw this on the Three Stooges. Right. <laughs> Pat <laughs> was more into like the the more technical wrestling type stuff. I know he did the Brett and Sean stuff earlier this year, but I don't know. Yeah. They all have their faults. Yeah, I mean, Pat Pat was always, they always say Pat liked to, you know, introduce humor into things, which kind of upset some of the other guys sometimes because they didn't want humor. But Pat also kind of tried to keep that away from, you know, the main event scene. So I don't see Pat introducing this here. This just felt like a Bruce Pritchard thing. Of course, I I have no knowledge of any of this. It's just my guess. I'm not defending any of these guys in this. Vince Russo, Pritchard, any of them. None of this stuff is uh, the greatest. Good. No, definitely not. (laughs) Uh, That That's... That's how I always felt. Like I always felt like the comedy and that stuff is fine for opening or maybe even the middle mid card. Yeah. If you want to do a, a comedy angle or comedy stuff, that's fine. But it should be nowhere near the main event scene. I, I feel like you devalue your belt and your champions and the people going for them when you stick this comedy shit in there. This that's why this feud does nothing for me. I mean like on paper I'm thinking this is excellent. Bulldog and Sean, they should put on some good matches. It's a nice change of pace from Brett to to Sean. And so like you get excited for that and then you just see these stupid angles that they put on top of them. And it's like it makes you not even want to see it. Like I don't even well, care. That's what gets it. that's what gets me about it is um these angles actually hurt the feud, I think, more than, than aid it because by the time you get done watching all this stupid nonsense, you almost forget that it's even about a title belt anymore. Yeah, I agree with you 100% there. All right, we're going to close out Raw. It's another King of the Ring qualifying match. Jake the Snake Roberts taking on Triple H, accompanied by, ooh, Jenny Lee. Looking good there. And it begins, Steve. It's punishment time for Mr. Triple H, who decided to participate in that click curtain call at Madison Square Garden. He was slated not only to win this match, but reportedly to win King of the Ring itself by pretty much everyone involved. So it's a, it's a sure thing that punishment time begins here. As Jake controls the match early on with a wrist lock, looks for the DDT, but Triple H bails repeatedly to the floor. Finally, Hunter takes over as we go into a commercial break, and the snake bag rises. I thought that was kind of a cool shot with the camera, the snake head lifting up in the bag as we go into commercial break. When we come back from break, Triple H kick and punch offense on Jake because he's really not going to take any real bumps here. Jake then makes the big comeback. Short clothesline. Triple H blocks the DDT by driving Jake back into the corner. Triple H takes over again and again another commercial. So both times Hunter takes over control straight into a commercial break. We never see heel offense, almost never, in this entire match, we come back from break again, and it's right into the DDT. I wrote, wow. Jake picks up the win in 12 minutes. And, and the, uh, all the minutes we watched were not very pretty. So Hunter even gets the snake after the match. Jake the snake picks up the win, advances into the King of the Ring tournament. Oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, this, this match was bad. Jake Roberts has no business being even in the ring at this point in his career. Uh, he's washed. He's done. And this wasn't very good at all. Like everything he does, you know, 90, 90, 89, 90, whatever, slow methodical work for him because when he did his offense, he actually could do it with pace and uh, make it look good. 
Right. But now he's going slow and methodical, and then when he does his offense, it's even slower and less methodical. So it's like uh, completely counterproductive when you work that way at 43 or whatever he was at this time, 43, 46, I don't know. So it, it's just it's so bad. Kind of like Hunter does a complete job. Like this is just, like he got offense, but we didn't see it. And then what we do see is him just getting demolished pretty much the whole match. And then he just lays flat on his back for the DDT. And I think Jake tried to put the snake down his pants. I mean, all sorts of stuff. So um, clearly, clearly getting punished for what the others did. Uh, he's the last one standing that you could touch because you're not going to do anything to the world champ. And the other two are gone. So um, Hunter's taking it on the chin for the boys. Yeah, I hope it was worth it. Uh, well, of course, he'll go on I'm and sure he'll, do, he'll, he'll do some other things. So it all works out. <laughs> he'll get payback. He'll get payback. Yeah. So, but yeah, so there we go. We know Triple H is not advancing into the King of the Ring. So now there must be a new winner for King of the Ring. I wonder who that's going to be. Jake Roberts and Stone Cold advance on into the tournament. During this match, uh, Vince McMahon announces on commentary that Diesel and Razor Ramon are no longer with the company. They are gone from the WWF, but they plan to perpetrate a ruse, Steve, that they still work for the WWF while appearing on a rival organization, of course, that being WCW. So Vince letting the cat out of the bag. Hey, Razor and Diesel are gone. They don't work here anymore. You're going to see them on WCW. They're going to imply that they're working here, but they don't. But I think this kind of backfires because isn't that exactly what Vince McMahon would say if he had guys going to run over there and try to take over the uh, rival company. He doesn't intend to do that here, and he, he exposes it. But at the same time, if I'm just a, a mark, or I hate to even use that term, if I just believe, even suspend my disbelief, I allow myself to think, well, you know, this maybe this is going to be a war. Maybe they're really going in, and Vince is you know, in on it and, and whatever. So it kind of works in Vince's favor, but I also think he kind of screws himself by even acknowledging this. I never really thought of it that way, but that's a great point. I just took it as him saying, like, I, I can't remember how I took this in 96. I may have missed it because uh, I was probably watching Nitro. So I, I can't say for sure how I reacted to it initially. But thinking about it now, that makes perfect sense on why it wasn't a good idea to say anything. But at the same time, you also want to, when has he ever done this before? Oh, yeah. Like, when's he ever, ever mentioned like WCW as, as something that actually existed? So in that respect, this never happened. <laughs> so well, we um, had the billionaire Ted sketches, say, uh, but to acknowledge yeah, the, acknowledge wrestlers leaving your company and where they're at, and, and this is all very brand new territory. Yeah, like the only other thing I get the time I could think of is Macho Man in '94 when he left. They said goodbye to him. They didn't really say he went to another company, but they actually acknowledged that he left right. the company. So. Other than that, like, I really can't remember a time when he, on commentary at least, said there's a rival competition or a rival corporate company and actually promoted something outside of their own world. At that, they, they, they were protected with that because this never happened. So he must, it must be true that they don't work for them anymore if they're actually bringing it up to acknowledge it. But at the same time, it's what you said too. It makes perfect sense too. It's like, what do you do? What would you do in that situation? I don't know. Just I guess I'd have to go back in time it? and put myself back in where we were then. I would imagine it was probably. Would you well, just let it ride? Or, yeah, I do think you think I this would... is a hard decision to make? Or I don't know. I feel like Vince was always a gut reaction guy or knee-jerk reaction guy, I should say. 
uh, he's a pretty smart guy, but at the same time, I feel like when he gets mad, he, he does, you know, whatever he feels he, he is right in that moment without really thinking things thoroughly through. I'm sure he thought this was the right call. He wanted you to know that, hey, this shit over there, don't watch it because it's fake. It's basically what he's telling you. And uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. I don't know true. that. I don't know. You know, it's been God. I don't even know the last time a promotion did that to another promotion. I remember Bill Watts doing that back when after Vince stole a dog and stuff. Boy, Watts really laid it into them after that. He would go on there and, and spend a segment of his show every week, of, you know, an hour long show in Mid-South <laughs> pointing out how fake the WWF is calling it fake up there in New York. But real, we're real down here and they. He calls the, the chairs up there breakaway chairs, and but we use real steel ones down here. And then he show you know have to show all the footage of people getting terrible concussions <laughs> in mid south. It's, it's real down <laughs> yeah. here, yeah. Yeah, territory days. You can definitely sell that comparing it to WWF. <laughs> Most territories are gonna look real compared to what Vince was doing. Segment of the night, I wrote puke, and that was being kind. Yeah. I mean, Triple H's punishment, Bob Holly and Steve Austin are uh, gold dust, naked, talking about tasting some chocolate. That's really all I got on here. <laughs> oh, man. I I don't know. Like It was three long, boring matches and nothing worth a shit to me. I I'd already talked about the tag division. It does absolutely nothing for me. I used to, I love the tag team division from the 80s and early 90s. Like It's, it's so entertaining and good when you have teams that matter and the belts that matter, and um, this is a far cry from that, and it's never been the same since. You know, it never has gotten good. I don't think for me anyway. But um, yeah, this was bad. Austin Holly was slow and boring. Mankind was sloppy. Jake and Hunter, Hunter, I just thought it was bad. Jake has no business in the ring. So my favorite part, the favorite segment was Mankind or the Goldust interviews. Just the the promo work and the talent involved uh, with with what they were doing. Was that was the best part of the whole show, uh, Goldust and Mankind? Yeah, I wanted just real quick on Jake too. Like you, like you said, he was in his early forties. I'm thinking he can't be more than forty one, forty two tops here. Like that's my age now. I can, I can do. I'm not saying that I'm Jake as far as like I, I wasn't on the road three hundred some days a year killing myself. Or well, Jake really didn't kill himself, but still, at the end of the day, yeah. But did. Jake, Jake moves like an eighty year old After here. The show, yeah, well, yeah, but uh, so he's like in his early 40s, but he moves like someone double his age, and it's just awful. It's just awful to watch. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, as far as uh, segment of the night goes, I remember you saying earlier in this episode that you like the Mankind promo, so uh, maybe that's your segment. I don't really know. I'm going to give it to yeah. Goldust Naked just because it's Goldust Naked. It's like it's creative. At the very least, whether it's good or not, you know, it's really up for, you know, everybody to make their own decision on. But he's laying there with a belt over his, you know, schlong or whatever. <laughs> blue Meanie did it. The blue dust bit with the uh, lay, laying uh, naked or in the park or whatever that was. So I'm not sure which came first off the top of my head. I feel like it might have been blue dust, but maybe not. I don't know. But either, maybe they were playing off of this. I'm not really sure. Either way. Uh, at least it was it was something new. I guess it's the best way I can put it. I will say in like '96, I was really into the Goldust gimmick because it was so different and unique, and he was so good at what he was doing that it makes you pay attention, even as a kid. Because like I told, I've said it a hundred times. My friend 
told me it was Dustin Rhodes. So it's like, okay, I've seen the natural. I've seen him work clash and some shows. So I know who Dustin Rhodes was. Um, I, I obviously the world rumble 91 match, but so like, I always liked Dustin. I always thought he was good in the ring and entertaining. So when he came over and it was gold dust is that at first it's like, man, get this shit off my TV. This is terrible. And then all of a sudden he gets really good at what he's saying and how he's delivering his promos. And it's just like, it's so far off the wall that, but it makes you want to pay attention and listen to what he's saying because you feel like you're going to miss something. And uh, I will give him credit for that, that he was interesting enough for me to pay attention almost every single time he did anything for first, probably for the first year or so of him right. being in the company. Once he yeah. gets with Luna and the rails fall off, it like it's bad. But um, the first, the initial run and the gold dust view of Ahmed and that sort of stuff was always something else and um yeah. memorable just because some of the angles and the matches that you see out of it oh, gold dust was good i agree i'll give you that and we move on to wcw news the road warriors officially quit the promotion on may 28th it was the same problem that had been going on for a few weeks now where they had heard what hall and nash were getting ready to be paid and they thought they should be in the same league and wcw management thought otherwise so the roadie's gone from the company, I believe, forever. Well, Animal comes back. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, there was that. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, what, a, what a night we'll that was. We'll get there in a couple of years or <laughs> yeah, so. We'll but, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, maybe. <laughs> we got to survive 2000. But um, no, yeah, as a team, yeah, absolutely. That's it. They'll be in WWF uh, about what? Where are we at? June? Another year or so. Demeltz claims that King Curtis, the master of the Dungeon of Doom, will be returning to head up the Dungeon of Doom, which will once again feud with Hulk Hogan when he gets back. And uh, Nitro kind of proves something similar to that. Not necessarily King Curtis, but Hogan feuding with the Dungeon of Doom. We'll see. But it's kind of interesting. We know when Hogan comes back, we know what happens when Hogan comes back. So this never really comes to fruition. King Curtis never returns to WCW. So we've seen the end of the master. I was like King Curtis, not here, not here in WCW, but I, I was like this, uh, his look and his, his promos from years gone by. Anyway, your wife doesn't like him. <laughs> no, she, has, she, she yelled at me that night. For those who don't know, that's a good story. Uh, when WWE first dropped uh, the wrestling challenges to the WWE Network, King Curtis had just come in. He was managing Kamala. He was managing Sika. And I'm going to tell you, Steve, I don't remember hearing like three promos together of King Curtis during that brief run in late 86, the beginning of 87 in the WWF. But I'll be damned if he didn't cut a promo every week on these wrestling challenge shows. <laughs> and I had the TV on in the room, and it's the middle of the night. I can't sleep. She's sleeping. And every fucking other segment, you know, it's Kamala Sika. And she's like, what the fuck is on the TV? Well, she, maybe she's a little, <laughs> little nicer than that. But, yeah, she was like, what the hell is that? And I was like, I couldn't even like say, come on, man, it's just wrestling because it was absolutely, it would be very annoying <laughs> if you heard that shit at like three o'clock in the morning. I could only oh, imagine. Yeah, especially so. if you're sleeping and all of a sudden IK comes on. <laughs> yeah, and he's cutting like this three minute promo with Ken Resnick or whoever uh, was at the time. Oh my God. He's like Virgil from the Can Wrestling Challenges from back in the day. He is. He's on, on every, every single episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And then there's the uh, Sika return vignette, too. Oh, yeah. But anyways, uh, King Curtis uh, was, uh, was quite an uh, uh, intriguing character, to say the least. Yeah. I always enjoyed him, too. 
We learned that Eric Bischoff has offered a deal to Chris Jericho after seeing him at the Peace Festival, the Inoki Peace Festival, and also talked to Bam Bam Bigelow, although Bigelow can't come in for several months because he's still under contract to the WWF. Bischoff wanted to use Jericho full-time. Of course, we know Jericho with ECW for a brief period here. He's going to win the TV title there, drop it, and then head on over to WCW. I think Jericho's told this story before, though. I think he got hired wanting to put on a show for Bischoff, and I think Bischoff told him he didn't even watch the match. He'd already left, maybe. I think that's mm-hmm. how the story goes. He just hired Jericho anyway because he knew he, he already knew he was a talent. Yeah, I think that's what this, how the story goes, is that Jericho wanted to be on there just to impress Bischoff because he knew Bischoff would be there. and Right. <laughs> Bischoff didn't even see the match. So I think somebody was there, Sullivan or somebody was there who saw it too and like put in a good word. Like, yeah, he's legit. You need to get him. Yeah, it's crazy. You got to make it happen. If you want it to happen, you got to make it happen. You're not going to just sit around and wait for a phone call. There's some talk that Ted DiBiase, who's headed, who's WCW bound, we already know that, he'll be brought in with a new gimmick of Zillionaire Ted. Of course, he won't be Zillionaire Ted, but you might think that sounds ridiculous out there, people, but it's pretty close to that. Trillionaire Ted on his way into the company. <laughs> yeah. All that church money he's stacking. Yeah. He can make it one day. Could be. If he doesn't keep getting caught, anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do better, Ted. Couple injuries last week on Nitro, one of which I don't understand how. I'm not shocked. And the other one, I'm not, I'm not shocked, shocked whatsoever. Right. Yeah. So we learned that Max Muscle, Matt, now just Max <laughs> in the Dungeon of Doom, injured his knee during his match with Lex Luger last week. I wondered how because they didn't really do anything the entire match. The but also, <laughs> well, yeah, that torture rack was tough on the knee. <laughs> Steve Dahl, the former Steve Dunn in the WWF, Steve Dahl was all banged up after his match with Mike Enos last week. And, of course, like you said, IG, I wonder why um, Enos really <laughs> took it to poor Steve Dahl. Of course, <laughs> then they get upstage by Scott Hall and nobody even remembers the match. But Steve Dahl does. He got the shit beat out of him. He's trying things and all sorts, stiff as hell. Yeah, um, Enos gave it to him. Yeah, he, he was trying to make an impression in that five minutes he had before Hall came out. So we know this episode of Nitro is June 3rd, but Meltzer writes as of June 4th, they had, they being WCW pronouns, pal, had still not even booked a card for the June 10th Nitro, which shows how far an advanced booking is being done. I wrote, so it's already falling apart a little bit here, Steve, six days away from the next Nitro and nothing is booked. Sounds WCW. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think a pay-per-view is what? 10 days away, two weeks away. We're not too far out from the bash. Yeah. We're not too, too far out from great American bash. I think it's like the 16th or something. So it's not too far off either. At the start of the WCW nitro tapings, we get a couple matches that don't make the TV show where Medusa defeats bull Nakano. We've seen that match in the WWF before with a German suplex and a match that was taped for the main event, not nitro. It couldn't air on nitro. All these great matches coming up, Steve. But uh, Medusa over Bull Nakano <laughs> with the German suplex airing on the main event. And then Medusa wrestles again. A second match. Bull didn't come in alone. Akira Hokuto also in town. Medusa beats Akira also, this time under disqualification. When Bull Nakano interferes in another match slated for the main event. They're like uh, B, no C, no D show probably at this point. At least the main event getting the Medusa matches. So Medusa comes in last fall. And she's going to, you know, uh, take a, revolutionize the women's division. And, and she, she threw the WWF title in the garbage. And then she did the Colonel Rob Parker stuff. 
and uh, we never really see her again. And now all of a sudden she's working dark matches. They're flying ladies over from Japan to work. Well, they're not dark matches, but they're working on the main event here. So money, no expense in WCW. Let's f- fly some girls over so they can do the job to Medusa on main event. So you see how she's really revolutionized the sport. Not her fault, but this is what WCW had in mind when they brought Medusa in. It was all about one-upping Vince. It had nothing to do with actually pushing a woman's division. That's obvious. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I don't recall WCW ever having a women's division ever. Uh, NWA either. Like, I don't remember in like the 80s, they never had women. At least Vince had women for a little bit there. You know, the rock and wrestling with Wendy Richter and those guys. So if Medusa wasn't working in the WWF, it wasn't going to work in WCW. You can bring in everybody, but if it's not getting over for Vince, it's not going to get over anywhere, I don't think. So it's a bad investment. Um, you caught a lawsuit for trashing the belt. Imagine if you never did that, and then, well, never mind. That, that lawsuit goes back to Ric Flair, so uh, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. But, yeah, just, just a complete waste of money. And I feel bad for Alundra Blaze because she signed up for it, yeah, but you're not going to turn down that money that she, he was giving her to do that. For whatever reason. No, and everybody always forgets. He paid her to throw the belt in the garbage, and he gave her a job, but she had already been cut from the WWF. It's not like she left the WWF like Luger did when she was still employed and there were still plans in place. She was done. She was told, we, we have no use for you guys anymore. You, you know, we're getting rid of the division. She was no longer under yeah. con- contract, which allowed her to jump over, but she had no job when she jumped over. So Right. Uh, well, the part that I was saying about like feeling bad for her is... Yeah. Eric Bischoff basically paid her to come in and trash the belt and knew they was going to do nothing with her uh, for a long period of time. So I'm saying like when WWF started up a women's division again, you know, with Sable and Jackie and Ivory and those guys, Medusa would have fit in there. But her doing that kind of cut those legs off. She was never coming back until recently, obviously. But Bischoff just used her as a pawn and basically cost herself two jobs. <laughs> she may have got paid, but she wasn't working. I don't know. Just is kind of a shitty situation. And we'll kick off WCW Monday Nitro for June 3rd. We're in Asheville, North Carolina, Crockett country in front of 4,500 fans, 3,500 paying. As we kick things off, our number one, of course, Larry Zabisco and Tony Schiavone open the show. We see a clip last week when Big Bubba cut off half of the hair of the shark. As we kick the show off, it's Mean Gene Oakland standing at the entrance way. He's getting ready to interview said shark. And uh, shark at this point says he's not shaving the other half of his head so he can relive the embar- embarrassment every morning. Well, that makes sense. Gene continues to call him shark at the beginning of every sentence. And that's when John Tenta utters the famous line, Steve. I'm not the shark. I'm not a fish. How are we to take <laughs> that serious? I'm not the shark. I'm not a fish. He's not the shark. He's not a fish. He's a man. (laughs) A man named John Tenta, he says here, and he's going to seek revenge on Big Bubba right now in the ring, and then he's going to shave the head of the giant for whatever reason. So, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's no longer a fish. He's John Tenta. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, That's funny. I always laughed at that, but... Uh, from I, I get what he's saying though. He, he's saying it's ridiculous to think he's a fish, an avalanche, a shark, anything. He's a man at the end of the day, and uh, he's getting his revenge. So um, 
we talked about this last week. Nobody really cares about John Tinta, which is unfortunate. So this angle wasn't going to work. He signed up to get his head shaved and look ridiculous for a crowd that doesn't really give a shit. This sucks, but again, I guess he's getting paid, right? Yeah, I think that's really all he's doing this for at this point. I'm not even saying that negatively. Uh, we know his contract ended. I think it, we. Uh, I read this off a few weeks ago. He was getting a quarter of a million dollars. I think at least a quarter of a million dollars per year in his contract it expired. Bishop decided, yeah, I'm not going to pay you that anymore. Of course, a quarter of a million dollars today would be well over a half a million dollars. So, uh, yeah, probably a good idea to end that contract, sever that contract, and Tenta gets to stay on on a per-appearance basis, I believe. So he's going to stick around for a little bit and collect a few more paychecks. And he's off to the ring to take on Big Bubba, no trouble, with Jimmy Hart in his corner. Tenta hits the ring, attacks Bubba. But Bubba has his hair, and he gets throwing it around the ring, so we see Tenta's hair laying everywhere in the ring. Disgusting. Bubba held on to that for the whole, whole week. And Tenta <laughs> with the uh, big power slam on Bubba. You know, I took it seriously. Oh, a nice power slam by the earthquake. And then they, they show a close-up of him, and he's got half a head of hair, and it just totally took everything away. You can't even take this guy seriously. <laughs> Not only is he embarrassed, but I'm embarrassed for him here. I feel awful. It feels like a Vince Russo thing. Bro, we'll pay you, but you gotta wear, you gotta wrestle with half a head of hair. Bro. That's, it just feels like what this is, really. Tinta then grabs the scissors after one move, the power slam. He goes and grabs the scissors brought to the ring by Bubba, and Bubba bails out of the ring, and he refuses to get back in. John Tinta wins the match on a count out in one minute. And, uh, referee Nick Patrick allowing Tinta to just stand there holding scissors of the ring because he's now John the Barber Tinta. I, I don't know what, what this is about. So he's uh, John the Barber Tinta, and uh, I don't I don't know what else to say. You can see him strutting and cutting. Yeah, and Larry made a great uh, comment on this. I don't know if you picked up on it, but he said, this wasn't Bubba's fault. This was Nick Patrick's fault. He let him run around with scissors. Why didn't he step in and take those from him? He's like, that's a disqualification if you're going to chase somebody around with scissors. So this, he's like, this wasn't on Bubba. This was the referee's fault for allowing this to happen. And I thought that was uh, a very good line by Larry because it made, that is common sense that you would think. But Nick Patrick just let it happen. But I guess, are you going to go after a dude carrying scissors? I don't know. So post-match, Tenda gets the win in a count-out. Bubba takes off. He gets to keep that gross. Uh, I wish it was his hair that they cut and, and beard, too, for that matter. But nope. Tenta lives to uh, lives to fight another day uh, with half a head of hair as uh, Big Bubba and Tenta will continue, unfortunately. And as we go into commercial, we get a bumper. We get new wraparound bumpers and things going in and out of these commercial breaks. And it's Mongo and Kevin Green talking about the Horsemen. We also hear a Sting promo. Well, we see clips of Stinger on the screen, but we actually hear Sting talking about the upcoming match later tonight. Sting and Luger defending the WCW tag titles against the Steiner brothers. Of course, we saw that Sting and Scott Steiner match last week. Back to the ring, it's the Faces of Fear, Ming and the Barbarian taking on a new team from the power plant. It's Ruckus. He's not Rage yet. He's Ruckus. And Chaos, they are called High Voltage. No manager here for Ming and the Barbarian as Chaos looks green as hell. Early on in this match, he lands a shoulder tackle on Barbarian and lands directly on top of Barb's leg. I thought Barbarian was going to get up and kick the shit out of him. And it's Ruckus who, <laughs> who pays for that because Barbarian with a power bomb on Ruckus. Ming even comes in and delivers a drop kick. And Ming is getting pretty thick these days, throwing a drop kick, looking good there. 
Barb to the top rope for his one of his new favorite moves, that top rope belly-to-belly superplex on poor Ruckus. And then it's a stereo diving headbutts by the faces of fear on Ruckus. But before they can make the cover, Chaos runs into the ring to break it up. And I'm not sure he was supposed to because, man, he faces the wrath of Ming here. Haku throws him so hard into the ropes, he's supposed to take the bump to the floor. He can't guide himself, and he takes a nasty fall through the ropes to the floor. The crowd even pop. Oh, for the, for the landing, Chaos suffers. He doesn't really get to do much in this ring. And Ming with a thrust kick on Ruckus and faces a fear. Quick win, two minutes and 21 seconds. Fear, here to me as a team, they look like they actually give a shit again for the first time in a while. I mean, the stuff they were doing, especially Barbarian. High voltage, need to go back to the power plant, especially Kenny Chaos. <laughs> yeah, man. I don't know what caused them to turn into what they turned into these last couple weeks, but it looks like Barbarian's having a lot of fun out there working. Uh, he was playing the crowd up after he did something. The belly to belly. Yeah, belly he, belly. yeah, the yeah, crowd popped. The crowd up. And he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, you never, you never even see Barbarian do that, right? <laughs> he's like broke character. No, no, like, yeah, always, yeah, give, give it up yeah. for me. So uh, that was really cool. Uh, I always liked these guys, not because of the stories that you hear outside of the wrestling, outside of the ring, but I always thought they were entertaining. And Barbarian doesn't get the credit he deserves. I thought he was a very fluid and athletic big guy. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, very he agile. was Jack, but but he was very agile and very very good. And I don't think he ever really got the chance to show it because he was in WWF for so long, and they're not going to let him do too much. And there's really no other place for him to go. Like he would have been awesome in ECW. I think Heyman would have done something to make that dude come out of his shell in the ring and just beat the living shit out of people. Like he could have <laughs> been a Taz, a Taz type worker or something like that. No, this is this is fun. Like yeah, but you're right, 100 percent high voltage, and you go back to the power plant for at least another year. I think one of them gets killed by the Steiners when they go to Atlanta or the. Universal to MGM tapings, wherever Disney for yeah. a month and a half for the Olympics. I think one of them gets killed with the Steiner screwdriver. So we got that to come up. That's coming up. Goody, I'm looking forward to that then. As we go to <laughs> an, a backstage interview, Mean Gene interviews Sting and Lex Luger. Sting talks to Lex Luger. He says, Lex, you provoked the Steiners last week. Of course, he's referring to Lex interfering in the Scott Steiner and Sting match. When Scott Steiner tried to suplex Sting on the floor, Lex Luger kicked. Scott Steiner and Luger says, what would you like for me to do? Allow him to suplex you on the floor there. Uh, you talk about friendship. Friends shouldn't be interfering in matches. Friends shouldn't be suplexing friends on the floor. Friends shouldn't let friends drive drunk either. And Luger asks what kind of friend suplexes a friend on the floor to Stinger. And I think Sting's coming around. He, you know what? That kind of makes sense. That's when Rick Steiner jumps into the promo and Sting admits, you know, if the roles reverse, he'd have to save Lex too. And what kind of friend does that anyway? That's when Scott Steiner comes in. So now we got both teams in this promo arguing backstage. Shoving begins as Scott Steiner says, if Lex makes him mad, he will jack him in the ring. It sounded almost like a shoot there. As a tag title match later tonight, the Steiners get to challenge Sting and Luger for the belts. <laughs> yeah, sound like a shoot. <laughs> yeah, he said he'll jack Luger if he gets him hot. And yeah. then Gene's like, I'll never interview you guys ever again if you don't cool it, like trying to get himself over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, call the hotline. Um, but no, this is pretty good. Luger made all the sense in the world. And like you said, Sting's starting to buy in a little bit. So uh, not bad. I was really looking forward to this match, but I got some comments uh, once we get there. But um, sure. I can't wait for this. Can't wait oh. for what's coming up. Oh, yeah. 
You must be talking about your man. It's the Disco Inferno back on Nitro for the first time. Feels like in quite a while. I wonder why. Taking on Craig the Pitbull Pitman, accompanied by his new manager, Teddy Long. And I wrote, oh, it's been too long since we've seen Disco out here. Disco tries an arm drag early on and oof, just terrible. Pittman falls on top of him. It was not pretty. Pittman, with an awesome waistlock takedown, he throws Disco across the ring and then a deadlift gut wrench into a powerbomb on a guy Disco Inferno size. Pretty impressive from Craig Pittman here. And then we get some awful Disco offense, I wrote. And he hurt his hand, though, hitting Pittman in the head. I wrote, ugh, because we got to do that. Hard head gimmick here. Pittman comes back with the headbutt spear. He goes for code red, but before he can even apply the hold, Disco Inferno submits. What the hell just happened? I remember watching this live and wondering, what the hell just happened? Why'd the bell ring? What did I miss? And for the first time I ever recalled, a wrestler submitted before the move was applied because he was afraid of having the move applied to him. Pittman picks up the win one minute and 50 seconds. (laughs) This was stupid. He did the hand thing where he puts his hands together and does like a wave, a wavy yeah, thing with him. Sure, yeah. He says, "He's dancing." I'm smart. If, if he does that, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. So like, all he cares about is dancing. Pittman, like, I don't know why these two are even having a match to be honest, but it's whatever. It's filler. It's funny. It is what it is. It's unfortunate that this is a segment on Nitro. You expand to two hours, and this is what you're doing with your. Your extra yeah. segments. Uh, yeah, yeah they, I think they should spend more time, you know, putting shit together and booking stories and things like, oh, wait, that never happened. So <laughs> this is what we get. Trash. Should be on Saturday night or worldwide or something, not Nitro. We continue on with the show. It's Hacksaw Jim Duggan taking on Lord Steven Regal with Jeeves in his quarter. Match gets going as Steve Regal stalls repeatedly. We get three Hacksaw clotheslines and Regal powders out of the ring, at which point Zabisco says, Hacksaw went through his entire repertoire, talking about the three clotheslines. I thought that was clever because it's kind of true. I, I was laughing. I was like, oh, look at this dude shooting on him. <laughs> Regal gets funny. back inside the ring, Duggan with a bunch of punches. Regal cuts him off, Duggan with more punches. Regal, Regal cuts him off, Duggan with more punches. Then uh, it's looking like Larry is right. I think Duggan is out of moves. Duggan then sets Regal up for the three-point stance, which is followed by what? Yet another clothesline, which connects. But before he can make the cover, Bobby Eaton and Squire David Taylor to ringside of the Blue Bloods. So Duggan goes and grabs the two-by-four. But while the referee is distracted by Bobby Eaton and Jeeves, Dave Taylor yanks the two-by-four away, which causes Duggan to go into his tights and pull out that tape. Tapes his fist up, boom, nails Earl Robert Eaton off the apron, but Regal from behind with his schoolboy gets the win in four minutes and 24 seconds. I wrote, how the hell does this prepare Regal for Sting at the Great American Bash? Do they even know what the hell they're doing? No, they don't. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense for why Regal, you know, he did, he did what he did last week, which I thought was really good, uh, the promo, and he, he was excellent there. And then you're about to talk about it here, but bitch slaps the hell out of Sting, and uh, <laughs> sounds brutal. So I mean, they're doing what they can to elevate him to where he needs to be for this match with with uh, Sting at the Bash. But this match did nothing for him. Like, why do you got to have outside interference? Why do you need all this stuff to beat Duggan of all people? Like, Duggan's done nothing. Uh, so it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. 
it should have been a clean, decisive win and a maybe a four or five minute match. I don't know how long this match went. Something more decisive would have been better for me. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you wanted the the convoluted finish for whatever reason, because you just don't want a clean win here for what you know, because he's a heel or because you want to get over the fact that, you know, these other guys could get involved in the sting match, whatever you were trying to tell whatever story we'll pretend you were trying to tell here with the the finish, there was no offense from Regal throughout the entire match. This was awful. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand you're trying to put over this match at the pay-per-view, so you got to get your underdog, which is the heel here in this instance, over as some kind of a threat, and it didn't do the job here. He can't even beat Hacksaw without the help of Jeeves, Bobby Eaton, and David Taylor. That makes all the sense in the world. It's just it's just WCW in a nutshell. Like you said, it's already starting to fall apart. You can kind of pick and see where this stuff is happening match by match, segment by segment already episode two of a two-hour show so um the groundwork's already there and the the unpredictability and the things that we all talk about that was the downfall of wcw is already here well before guys like hogan hall and nash start taking things over and doing what they want to do whenever they want to do it one good thing about having two hours expanding the two hours is some of these guys get mic time that would have never gotten mic time before here on nitro and that includes steve regal who cuts a promo after the match after beating Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And we go back in time to WCW main event. We see the contract signing between Regal and Sting. And then he refers to Sting as Sunshine before, like you just already mentioned, he slaps the taste out of Sting's mouth legit. Oh, it was a nasty slap. It was an awesome slap. And I loved it. I thought it was a great segment. And this segment, this clip here for main event, was also when I finally introduced the word Sunshine I allowed it into my, my repertoire of words. I thought that was uh, the way Regal delivered it was great. Sunshine. And then he <laughs> slaps the shit out of him. Uh, back to the ring Ugh. with Mean Gene and Regal. Regal says he wants Sting at his best. That's why he slapped him. He wants Sting to be mean, nasty, and rude. So it means more when Regal beats him. This is a great promo if we hadn't just seen what we saw right before the promo with Hacksaw. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we was talking about. The promo was excellent, man. I loved it. I loved what he, how he said it. He wanted to get the very best out of Sting at the bash. He wanted to piss him off and get him going. Because if you beat him at, at Sting's absolute best, if not more than his best, then what's that mean for Regal? That means he's pretty damn good himself. So it makes all the sense of the world why he said what he said and did what he did. But the match itself just hinders the visual of what Regal can do. When it takes three guys who haven't even been around, really, like the Blue Bloods haven't been around in months as a team, then all of a sudden they just pop up and show up here. Makes no sense. It's like they're cutting their nose in spite of their face. Yeah, I mean, the promo itself made all the sense in the world. The segment with the contract signing, uh, him slapping Sting. Wow, Regal slapped the shit out of Sting, and it kind of just was left at that. He talked about being fined for that, of course. So a little bit of realism there as well, but you want one of or the guy they call the franchise sting you want you want sting at his best but you can't even beat hacksaw by yourself so it's kind of odd booking as the show continues on though we'll talk about uh kevin sullivan yeah we get a, uh, another video of course raw uh, nitro expands so we get extra things including a feud recap this time it's of chris benoit and kevin sullivan we see promos the guys have recently cut on saturday night of course it's slamboree sullivan helped public enemy put Benoit through a table 
and the feud continues on. They'll face each other at the Great American Bash. Pinfalls count anywhere, I believe, in that matchup. And it's to the ring here on Nitro. Kevin Sullivan with Jimmy Hart in his corner taking on the debuting Prince Iakea, another power plant guy. So they're giving these guys tryouts right here on Nitro. And of course, for those who don't know, Prince Iakea named after King Curtis. Iakea obviously here, so Sullivan obviously a fanny. He got King Curtis hired. He got him to, to do the master gimmick. And he worked with him in Florida as part of that Army of Darkness stuff way back when. And uh, more power plant guys, though, with Prince I.K. in here, but he does get to use the name of King Curtis's son, who, who also worked some Rocky I.K. as Prince I.K. many years before this. Sullivan attacks and drops I.K. a crotch first onto the safety rail. Larry Zabisco with another great one-liner. I don't think they should be calling it a safety rail anymore. Back, <laughs> back in the ring, it's the Tree of Woe and the Running Knee followed by the double stomp. Sullivan picks up the win one minute and 20 seconds. I didn't realize how witty Larry Zabisco was during this period until just listening to this Nitro. He had a lot of good one-liners here. Not Bobby Heenan-type ha-ha one-liners, but they were just clever. Yeah, I always liked Larry. I don't know if it's just the way his voice is or what makes everything seem, makes him sound really, really intelligent, whether he is or not. I don't know. You believe what he says just because of the way he sounds, but he made a lot of good points. He made a lot of uh, funny lines, and I always paid attention to him as a kid because I always felt like, obviously, the NWA angle is going to work no matter what, but Larry did a, a tremendous job selling the hostile takeover and, and everything, and I know we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, but he just made it seem so damn scary for WCW. He did, he just did an excellent job, and this is kind of the start of it, so I'm that's what this he's one of the pluses of a two hour nitro. At least we get him for an hour. So Sullivan makes sure to get himself on this show, and I guess why not? He's in the middle of the Crispin Waugh feud now, so he needs to get himself over in time for that match coming up. And Mean Gene then interviews Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart about Crispin Waugh, and Sullivan says he only respects two men in the wrestling business Arn Anderson and Ric Flair. Sullivan says he warned Arn about Brian Pillman, and then of course he made Brian Pillman quit. So Sullivan says here. And now it's on to Chris Benoit. Sullivan says he knows Benoit is a serpent. He knows serpents better than anyone. And he's going to crush the egg of this serpent to get rid of it. So Sullivan looking to take out Benoit. I think Benoit's trying to overthrow the other horsemen here. Use them. Yeah, this feud came out of nowhere. I feel like we're missing a lot if we don't watch Saturday night, but I'm not taking the time to do that. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad we get like the, the feud recap videos and that sort of stuff before the match just a second ago. So um, it told the story, told me why I should care about this uh, promo coming up or why they, why I should care about Kevin Sullivan being on my TV. So uh, good job by them. They are utilizing, they're utilizing that time wisely, I feel like, for now. Right. <laughs> the matches are entertaining. I'll say that between Benoit and Sullivan. But yeah, it does feel like, uh, it's like, well, I get that there's a story here. We see the, the storyline from that video. But again, I didn't really remember what started it all, so it was kind of cool to catch up on things there uh, moving forward. It has me a little more intrigued, but we never really see Benoit on Nitro, so it's it hurts. It, and Ric Flair's only going to come out here and talk about Ric Flair and Macho Man's money, so he doesn't really inco- uh, incorporate. Girls, yes, you know. so he doesn't really involve Benoit in any of his storylines. I don't even know the last time we saw Benoit involved with the Horseman, even though he's still technically a Horseman. I don't even remember them like talking about the Horseman. They may mention it, but it's not a group. Benoit's kind of just floundering there. And speaking of 
remnants of the horsemen. It's Ric Flair and Arn Anderson headed to ringside with Liz and Woman in their corner, getting ready to take on, holy shit, a blast from the past, Ricky and Robert. The Rock and Roll Express. Yes, the Rock and Roll Express here. In WCW 1996, Flair rocking the Kevin Green Carolina Panthers jersey and Arn Anderson the Mongo Chicago Bears jersey. Of course, mocking their opponents at the Great American Bash, Mongo and Kevin Green. As the match gets going, we're only two or three minutes in when boom, 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 it's pyro fireworks in the middle of the match <laughs> as we switch announcers in the middle of the match. Arn jumps a mile. Arn jumps a mile. Yeah, nobody knows it's coming. There's no countdown. Yeah, it's just pyro in the middle of the match. And I remember them; they used to do this, but it's different. So you can put it if you're only into something being different and that makes it cool, then more power to you. But it really kills the match if you're like deep into a match and then this pyro goes off and music plays and you switch announcers. It's like it's more about the pageantry of the show than the match in the ring really doesn't mean anything. Luckily, we're early enough in this match that you can kind of get back into the match if you're into this match. The Rock and Roll's doing all of their old stuff early on with the Horsemen, the stuff they did many years ago. And the ladies, they sit back and they enjoy things over in the VIP area, drink a little champagne. We even get double figure fours by Ricky and Robert on Arn and Flair. And the Rock and Rolls are over here in North Carolina because it's, it's Crockett country, don't forget. Flair bails out of the ring. He gets into an argument with referee Randy Anderson. Randy shoves Flair down in the aisleway as we go into commercial break. When we come back, the Horsemen are getting heat. On Ricky Morton, so Ricky Morton playing the role of Ricky Morton here, taking the heat. Ric Flair tries the figure four, but Morton with a inside cradle for a near fall. Bobby Heenan leaves the announce desk. He comes down to ringside. Bischoff still on commentary. No idea what Heenan is up to. Heenan goes over. He has some words with the ladies, Liz and woman. At ringside, he turns around, leaves, and back to the announce desk. As we're in the ring, we see Ricky Morton make the crawl through Arn's leg. Hot tag. To Robert Gibson, it's Gibson and Flair in the ring now as the Rock and Rolls nail their finisher. The double dropkick on the Nature Boy. The double dropkick on Arn Anderson. But that's when Miss Elizabeth distracts referee Randy Anderson and Ricky Morton, allowing Woman to hop up on the apron, rake the eyes of Robert Gibson as Arn Anderson sneaks in a DDT from behind. Ric Flair makes the cover on Robert Gibson. Flair and Anderson pick up the win 18 and a half minutes. They gave these guys all the time in the world. I'm sure because they knew where they were, and I'm sure Flair asked for it. And I can't blame him because this is it was a throwback. The rock and rolls were awesome. They they know how to do a classic tag match. They can get you invested. They're gonna the crowd loved it. They did good. A lot of the funny, a lot of good angles of the double figure fours, the pee wee spot, Heenan coming down was cool. So there's a lot of a lot of good stuff here. Uh, it's it's probably not for everyone. But I enjoyed it. I had a, I had a good time with this match. It was fun. Yeah, it was a nice throwback. If you guys were expecting the classics we got in the 80s, you'd be wrong. But it was good for what it was. We saw some some of the old classic spots, and uh, it's the rock and rolls were still capable in the ring. But DeMeltz, this is what DeMeltz had to say for this match. He said, the rock and rolls are too old for their gimmick, too old for their style. They're too old for their gear, basically, as well. And then Meltzer even says that the Rock and Rolls, they just don't have it anymore. He was not a fan of this match whatsoever. Yeah, well, kick rocks, Dave Meltzer. <laughs> the Rock and Rolls are still going, buddy. <laughs> same gear, same match, and they can still do it. Not quite as fast and not quite as good, but they can still do it. Probably still faster than Jake Roberts in 96, though. 
Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> and Ricky Martin, I think one of them has a gut like uh, Jake did in 96, too. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so oh we talked about Bobby Heenan coming to ringside and talking to those ladies for a little bit in the late portion of that match, and it kind of ties into what happens here. We have to presume that Bobby went to ringside and, and gave the ladies a tip on how to handle this match, and that's when we see Liz interfere distract the referee woman get involved not like woman needed needed this advice but it all plays in because why else would bobby heenan do this gene okerlin interviews rick flair and arn anderson in the aisle near the vip table arn says they're just way too big and uh, yes he uh, emphasizes too big much bigger if you know what i mean than uh, mongo and kevin green they can't fit into the jerseys of the football players of course these wrestlers are, are bigger than the football players and uh, Ric Flair says, Debbie does the nature boy now, not Dallas. So Ric Flair still being the current day Ric Flair, the modern day Ric Flair of 1996. Talks a little shit to the football players, the former football player Mongo, the current football player Kevin Green. That's when Bobby Heenan moseys on down and he says he's not a manager anymore. He, he's not going to manage Ric Flair and Arn Anderson at the bash. They're a little upset as Bobby walks away, but then Bobby Heenan comes back and he, and he brings with him. The 1988 All Madden Trophy. Of course, Bobby was a uh, coach of the 1988 All Madden team. And he said he can't manage Flair and Arm because he's retired as a manager, but he will coach them at the Great American Bash. So Bobby is going to be ringside for the Flair and Arn versus Mongo and Kevin Green match, just to add a little more. And I wrote, Bobby Heenan goes straight from announcer, which he's done now for several years, Right back into a manager, I'm sorry, a coaching spot here. And it's like he never left. Perfect Bobby Heenan promo as a heel manager. He's good, man. It's like riding a bike for him. He can switch in between both of them, like, probably at the same time. He could be on commentary, cut a promo, and then go right back to being a commentator. And I think he does it here coming up. Uh, just excellent work. I mean, the Flair stuff's getting old. It's annoying. It is what it is. But Arn was good. Heenan was excellent. Gene did a good job. Not a bad segment. Pretty good stuff. We get more bumper promos going into commercial break. It's a quick promo from the Giant and a brief Hulk Hogan video. And I wrote, I like this. Guys who have no business with full promos. And Hogan is minimized by this simple little bumper video. So I like that they're using this properly at this point. And Steve, our world is about to continue to change. as blood continues to run cold every week. There's a brave new world out there. Glacier, coming soon to WCW. How soon? I guess we'll find out eventually. Way down the line. <laughs> yeah. Spoke too soon. Uh, speaking of speaking too soon, I just put over how there was Hulk Hogan was minimized with that bumper video. We were just going into a commercial break. We got like a 10-second Hulk Hogan video. Well, good things never last. I spoke too soon. I wrote blah, because now we get a full-length Hulk Hogan music video, because we need that with him gone from the company. we got to remember that Hulk Hogan is part of WCW as we go back to the ring. WCW champion the Giant with Jimmy Hart in his corner, taking on, dude, or is that Tugboat? No, it's, it's, it can be both. It's Ice Train, not Tugboat, guys. Clearly, no steroid policy here in uh, WCW, I wrote, as I looked at Ice Train, because holy shit, is that dude juiced to the max. I don't care what you say. Unfortunately, that doesn't help him here. Choke slam. Yes, that's the match. Choke slam. Giant picks up the win in 27 seconds. And before we get to the post-match shenanigans, I wanted to point out recently, I just 
actually came across a, an ice train interview in which he stated that his contract stated that he got paid quite more for fake title matches on TV. And that's why he said you didn't see him in these title matches again because they realized what they had to pay him after this 27-second job. And, uh, yeah, so some, somehow he got it into his contract that he gets paid more during these fake title matches. Yeah, so he didn't, he didn't mind doing the job in 27 seconds for whatever it is he made on this match. The entrances were longer than the match, and he probably yes. got paid more than 95% of the people on the card. <laughs> Tremendous work by the team that writes the contracts for WCW wrestlers. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So post-match, Scott Norton, the tag team partner of Ice Train, is out, and he's upset at what the Giant did to his buddy, his kayfabe buddy. And shoot, I don't think he was a big fan of Ice Train. But he slaps the Giant on the shoulder. Hey, man, what did you do to my dude over here? Norton goes over to check on Ice Train. And he's attacked by the giant. Giant choke slams Norton twice. Both guys laid out as we go to Mean Gene. He's standing by with the giant. The giant then challenges Hulk Hogan whenever he returns. So clearly there's a guy named Hulk Hogan in this promotion as they've reminded us nearly every segment of this Nitro here. Giant challenging a guy who's not even in the company right now. Then the giant turns his attention to Lex Luger, which makes sense. He's defending the title against Lex Luger at the pay-per-view. He says Lex got in between the Giant and Jimmy Hart's friendship, their relationship. He wants to end Lex Luger at the bash. Yeah, I don't know why he wants Hogan. Hogan did a bunch of dumb shit to him and made him say stupid things on in interviews and <laughs> beat the shit out of him, kicked out of his uh, no, yeah. finisher. No sold his finisher, beat him with a chair. Yeah, like why the hell would you want this clown back? Like, Let's just not mention him, you know? It's like Beetlejuice. Let's not say his name three times and just let him disappear into to the abyss. Clearly, there is a directive on this episode of Nitro to promote Hulk Hogan as much as possible. They show a little snippets of that video, like every commercial break, then they give us the full-length video. The Giant talks about him. Kevin Sullivan talks about him. Uh, they're just planting the seeds for when he does come back, but clearly plans change. This was Dusty booking Dusty back in the Crockett era, but Dusty was at least on the shows. No matter what feud was going on, no matter what heel came out, they still had to mention Dusty in their promo for, for the most part. These guys are all coming out. They're mentioning Hulk Hogan, but he's not even here. It's force-fed, and it's clear at this point Hogan was to return, even here at the beginning of June, to feud with the Dungeon of Doom. That was going to continue, so we know what that would have done ratings-wise. So uh, they get lucky, <laughs> so I'll say that much. <laughs> they got lucky for sure. So we go into break. It's Ice Train and Norton both still laid out from the choke slams. Of course, remember Norton took two. So we go through a commercial break, and when we come back, Scott Norton still laying dead in the ring after the break from those two choke slams. When his opponent Hugh Morris makes his way out, Morris comes out. He he attacks the laid out Scott Norton. He mocks him. Even puts his index finger on him for a pinfall. One two. Norton manages to kick out. Eric Bischoff says. That's wrong. Putting the finger on there, obviously. Bobby Heenan goes, yeah, that's wrong. It should have been the little finger. So Bobby Heenan being Bobby Heenan there. Hugh Morris with several elbow drops. is on, It's becoming more and more boring with, with every passing elbow drop. Then he finally decides to go up top. He's going up for the no laughing matter, the moonsault. But Norton is up to his feet, and it looks like Scott was supposed to catch the 300-pound Hugh Morris flying through the air, but he drops him. And it doesn't work out. Scott immediately, though, covers it up by, well, he, he's pissed off. He, he fucked the spot up. So take it out on the other guy. 
as uh, Norton just drives three forearms right through the face of Hugh Morris and makes the cover to pick up the win in one minute and 47 seconds. Normally, three forearms, I'm not buying it, but with Scott Norton here, I, I bought that as a finish. The fact that he thought he could catch Hugh Morris coming off the top rope with a moonsault to body slam or whatever the hell he was going to do is laughable. I don't care how big you are. I mean, come on, dude. You're big, but you're not. You're like short, so that's you're just not going to have an opportunity to do something like that. The giant could probably do it, but you, no, no way. Like I don't know whose idea this was, or who thought it was going to even possible, but it looked ridiculous. But I'm buying the forearms, like you said, and then he, then he he choked him as he pinned him. Like the pin was a choke, so <laughs> he had his hand around his neck and was choking him as if it was Morris's fault. But, yeah, it um, was it was like rage, rage, rage. He exploded there at the end. <laughs> unloaded right three. rage coming in. It was like <laughs> it was like MMA striking long before that was a, a really popular thing, just right across the face, three big forearms, and he just covers him, like you said, across the throat. More, so Scott, Scott wasn't Norton, happy, but No, he was trying to save face. He's like, first I get laid out with choke slams, then this guy, you know, shows me up, and then I fuck up the finish. So somebody's gotta pay. <laughs> Well, we talked about the good announcing on this show. Did you hear the terrible line from Bischoff? Like, Norton moved his leg just a little bit, and Bischoff said Norton could be having a mild seizure from wow. the choke no, I missed slams. that. I missed that, thankfully. I'm like, what What are we doing? Really? He's moving his leg to get adjusted, and you're saying he's having a seizure. Get the hell out of here, <laughs> yeah, Bischoff. I, <laughs> I, 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 missed, I missed that one, thankfully. It's his boy, though. He's putting him over. He's making it sound like he's going through this traumatic event and he's because he, i think bishop probably knows the ending here he's just selling it more for him making him look even better and bigger and badder than he is i guess so here we go it's vignette time as mongo and kevin green prepare for their match against oh flair and arn anderson at the bash they have a game plan as they talk about what they're going to do up here on this uh board uh drawing some things mongo apparently supposed to do a crossbody at one point in the match uh are they really playing the, the matches? Yes, it was it was not a good vignette. But at the end, it was terrible. The, the selling point of this vignette was they wonder if the Macho Man can manage since he's no longer allowed to wrestle right now. He's banned from wrestling. Is he banned from managing? So they kind of hint that they're going to go talk to the Macho Man about managing them at the Great American Bash. And uh, you know, before we even get to the main event here, the Macho Man call he calls in at the beginning of this match. So we'll talk about that before we actually get to the match so we can separate the two things. The Macho Man calls in at the start of the main event, and he, he admits, yes, I'm banned from wrestling, doesn't say anything about coaching. So if they need a nut, he says he's the head cashew. The Macho Man agrees to corner Mongo and Kevin Green against Flair and Arn, who are accompanied by Bobby Heenan. Of course, the rest of the show is Bobby Heenan pleading, Macho Man, please, please don't, please don't come to ringside with these two guys. So now we learn the Macho Man's going to be part of the match as well. It's a way to slide him into this feud with Ric Flair without actually having him wrestle Ric Flair at this point, but I'm not into any of this. I don't really care one way or the other. Macho's there or not. I like the fact that Heenan's back. It's, it's going to be cool to see him down ringside one more time uh, as a manager. So that, that's cool. It's not a selling point to me, but it's not bad. So, yeah, we get to the main event. We had that pretty solid match last week with Sting and Scott Steiner. I know you really enjoyed it. I thought it was good uh, as well. Uh, this week, it makes sense. The storyline continues. It's Sting and Luger defending the titles against their friends, the Steiner brothers. But remember, this phone call with the Macho Man, it actually takes place at the beginning of this match. 
ruins the entire early part of this match. They even do a split screen of Eric Bischoff and Bobby Heenan on commentary, so you can barely even see the ring as they do a faraway crouch, uh, uh, camera shot of the match at the same time. Whoever thought that was a good idea. So you really got to really be paying attention to the match to even see what's going on in the ring because they want to focus on Bobby Heenan selling the response of the Macho Man saying he's going to be part of that tag team match at the Bash. And I wrote, you could have done this in any other fucking match all night, and it wouldn't have mattered. They wait until this match, Sting and Luger versus the Steiners, to do this. Yeah, that's what pissed me off, too. They, they spent the whole night hyping up this match, uh, at least the first hour hyping up the Steiners versus Sting and Luger, and then the first three or four minutes of the match is totally playing second fiddle to the Macho Man phone call, and then Bobby Heenan cutting his promo, trying to tell big Macho Man not to be part of the match and all that. So it just completely takes away from the match that you stuck around to see. It kind of pissed me off. Just bad, just terrible idea. Like, I don't know whose idea this was. This would be something you would probably do leading into, like, the second hour of Nitro. Do this during the Luger or the Flair and Arn match instead of the, uh, well, I guess you couldn't because Heenan probably would say no if you knew Macho Man was going to be the manager or the coach of the other team. So <laughs> I guess you cu- you couldn't, but the fact that you took away from this match kind of sucked. Yeah, and what really sucked about it was Scott Steiner unloads a double underhook powerbomb on Lex Luger, of all people, during this split screen. How do you do that? Like That's got to be like the worst move Luger's ever taken, and we barely even get to see it here as we go into our commercial break. Coming back, Rick Steiner with a belly-to-belly superplex on Luger and the top rope Bulldog as well on the total package, but Sting breaks up the count. It's the hot tag then to the Stinger. Stinger splash and a scorpion deathlock on Rick Steiner, but Scott Steiner breaks it up with a Steiner line and then a rolling belly-to-belly and a top rope Frankensteiner because he's getting juiced out to the max at this point, and I don't know if we're going to see very many more normal Frankensteiners. So we get the top rope Frankensteiner here by Scotty on Sting. And this time it's Lex in to break up the count. Sting then floats over a Scott Steiner suplex again into that Scorpion death drop. You know, we've seen that twice now in the last couple weeks. I had never even noticed Sting using this until, you know, we get Crow's Sting. So uh, it was kind of interesting to see the Scorpion death drop was actually starting to be initiated here by Sting earlier in 1996. Yeah, I never really knew, noticed it either. He's a little foreshadowing here, but yeah, I always liked the move. I thought it was cool. So Sting nails the Scorpion Death Drop and makes the hot tag to Lex Luger. And Luger comes right in. He tries to rack Scott Steiner, but Rick puts a stop to it immediately. And Scott sends Lex to the outside. And now it's Luger on the floor trying to suplex Scott on the concrete, which Rick puts a stop to. So I wrote hypocrite. Rick was the one upset that Luger got involved and stopped the suplex last week. So we wind up with a four-way melee in the ring as Sting tries to pile drive Rick as they take it out to the floor. But Rick Steiner backdrops Sting in the aisleway, and then out comes the Giant, who grabs Rick Steiner by the throat and delivers the ugliest fucking choke slam I have ever seen in my entire life. And we've been watching the Giant Gonzalez, Steve. This was awful. Giant choke slams Rick Steiner, if you want to call it that, in the aisleway. I guess he was protecting him because it was it was the aisle. But don't do it <laughs> at that point. It's the only thing I can say. Luger then tosses Scott Steiner over the top rope and onto a poor cameraman, and then the bell rings in about nine minutes. As the Giant enters the ring, he goes at it with Lex Luger. Sting and Scott Steiner then enter the ring. They aid Lex 
In a triple team on the Giant, they whip Luger into the Giant with a clothesline, sending the Giant over the top rope to the floor, but he lands on his feet. Demeltz calls this a no contest. I wrote, was it a DQ? Nick Patrick calls for the bell right after Luger whips Scott Steiner over the top rope. Then again, the Giant choke slammed Rick Steiner in the middle of the aisle, and he was entering the ring at the same time. So this is where I wrote, this has gotten pretty sloppy as of late here in WCW. No announcement of these finishes. This has got to be like the fourth, fifth time we're questioning what exactly was the finish. Because clearly WCW doesn't even give a shit. They definitely don't. Imagine being someone at the show and you have no clue what the finish is or who won what or what the deal is. All you see is all chaos. All four guys are working. Giants all of a sudden in the ring. It's just a bunch of crazy shit going on at the end. And then the bell rings and you have no clue who won or what won or what happened. So uh, very lazy, very sloppy. I had the exact same note that you did. It was the shittiest looking choke slam I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, that was brutal. I mean, he picked up Luger and dropped him through a table with no issues. So what the hell's the problem with? Obviously, you can't just pick him up and drop him on the concrete. That's not going to work. But you don't need to go that slow. It's like he went down super slow motion just to lay him down on his back. <laughs> it's like he made a bed for him. So he's just going to put him in bed with a choke slam. Uh, it was terrible. Yeah, so like you, you get hyped for this match because we've seen it a couple times and it's good. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the beginning of this match is derailed by Macho Man calling in. And the end's derailed because it's a cluster and they have no clue how to get out of it. So they just do stupid shit and totally waters it down. And it's at the point now where I just don't even really care to see it again because it almost feels like they want to give the Steiners the belts, but they don't want Sting and Luger to have to do the job to do it. Right. So it's it's just a weird dynamic. That's why Sting and Luger probably shouldn't have the belts to begin with, but... That was somebody else's idea. So uh, we get no conclusion of the match. We don't know who won the match. We see Scott Steiner in the ring. Of course, he came to the aid because of what the Giant did to Rick Steiner in the aisleway. Sting comes back in the ring to help his partner Luger with the Giant. So we have Scott, Sting, and Luger in the ring, the Giant on the outside. Rick Steiner laid out, and we never even really hear anything else about Rick Steiner here on this episode. As we cut back to Eric Bischoff and Bobby Heenan at the desk, and Bobby Heenan pleading again, Macho Man, please, please don't show up. Please don't come to the bash. You don't need to be part of this match. So Bobby Heenan, the coward here, he doesn't want Macho Man. He, he believes now that maybe this will help Mongo and Kevin Green in the battle against Flair and Arn. But oh, shit. Heenan takes off. He bails. This is the beginning of Heenan bailing nearly every week because he's back. It's Scott Hall returning toothpick and all as he confronts Eric Bischoff again. But Sting has something to say to Scott Hall. Let's pick up the closing moments of Nitro. Wait a minute. I'm getting out of here. Wait a minute. Not again. Not again. Look, you hit. You hit. Man, just relax, Chico. Yo, Kendall. I have such a good time last week that I came back for more. Look, there's look, no man, reason. Look, man, look, look, look. Relax, man. Relax. You started it. You want to go to war? You got a war. You started it. We going to finish it. What do you mean, we? You're coming up with this we you know stuff who, again. Man. I don't see You know anybody. who. Hey, did Daddy Warbucks, he get his money yet? Hey. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Singer. Wait a minute, Singer. Not here, not now. Look, don't even dignify it, man. 
You came out here last week and said some real horrible things about WCW. Some real horrible things about the Hulkster, about Macho Man, about the Stinger. Somewhere along the way, you got lost because you have any idea where you are? You're in the jungle, baby! This is WCW! That's right! Hold on! And every week you come out here, you say you want three of the best at WCW. That's right, that's right, man. Three of the best, man. Three of the best. Three of the best. You want three of the best. I don't see two with you. All I see is you and me. So why don't we just do this one-on-one right here, right now? Yo. Yo. You want to fight, man? You want to fight? You got one. Only nobody tells me what to do. And Chico, nobody tells me when to do it. Okay, okay, tough guy. I got a little, no. I got a big surprise for you next week. Next week. Next week. All right, and so we don't have video here. So what what happens there at the end of the the segment is Scott Hall flicks his toothpick at Sting. Sting then slaps the shit out of Hall. Kind of payback for Steve Regal slapping Sting. I think he took it out on Scott Hall here. Uh, but Halden says he has a big surprise next week. Of course, we all know what that will be. But the people waited all night. If you tuned in to see what was going to happen next in the Scott Hall saga or the Hall and Nash saga, you waited all night for this. Where's Scott Hall? What the hell's going to happen this week? Of course, we saw him in the middle of the show last week before he showed back up at the end. This time, all, we had to wait all the way to the end. So they tried to keep people waiting to the very end for Scott Hall. Pretty smart booking in that sense. And uh, it was a fun little segment there. Now Hall has interacted with one of WCW's own. In fact, their franchise. Yeah, this is pretty cool. It's nice to see WCW coming back at Hall instead of just letting him do whatever he wanted like he did the first week. Nice to get Sting involved early. Clearly, when you if you're going to go to war against WCW, Sting's going to be at the front line. He is the franchise, so there's no other person that can be in that role. And he really did slap the shit out of Scott Hall there. Maybe he took some pointers from Regal. Not a really good segment to end the show, and it makes you. And then they tease the big guy, uh, the big surprise next week. So, uh, so you know to tune in. Makes, absolutely, they may not be doing long term booking for everything on the card, but they're doing long term booking for this to make you want to tune in to see what's going to happen. And I guess all it takes is to have one angle really to make you want to do that. Everything doesn't have to be must see TV, but if as long as you have one thing. And you do it right like they did here. You have to wait all night to see it. People are going to stick around to see it because that's what they want to see. So um. Yeah, and what's, what's really cool here, uh, going back to 1996 when I'm watching this, when it happened, is fantasy booking. Because you used to get the old after mags, uh, dream matches that you know, had never happened at that time. Hogan and Flair, long before Flair ever came to the WWF, you'd see that, oh man, if that ever happened. Uh, Warrior and Sting, things like that. Obviously, that wouldn't be a very good match, but it was just another dream match on paper. And then here, now you can kind of fantasy book. Oh my God, Razor Ramon from the WWF versus Sting from WCW. That would be pretty cool. 
So that's the way we're looking at it as 1996 fans. At least I was. So it was a, a very cool deal. Even though we know it's all a ruse and uh, Scott Hall signed with WCW, it's still cool to see guys from, quote-unquote, both promotions uh, going at it here. Mm-hmm. I agree with you there. It may have already happened, or you may have already seen it, you know, from 91 or something, but yeah, it's different when guys are actually established. It's kind of like Roman Reigns now. We've seen Roman and Brock Lesnar how many times, but nobody gave a shit about Roman Reigns, but now that Roman is who he is, like, I want to see him and Brock Lesnar again because he's established. He's something now right. compared to what he's ever been. I'm not putting him on the level of a, a Hall of National. I mean, I guess you could. I don't see why not. But the point I'm trying to make is the Diamond Stud and Oz are doing nothing for anybody. If they get in right. the ring with Sting in 91, it's how long is the match going to be before they tap out to the Scorpion? Now it's Razor Ramon, it's Diesel, and Sting – okay, I want to see this. These are two of WWF's top guys going against WCW's top guy. This is going to be awesome. It's a completely different dynamic compared to what they would have been early on in their careers. So it's just a different, completely different dynamic, and it's very cool. Nice way to end this show. Yeah, good job. And we're two weeks into the Scott Hall storyline. Of course, that will we'll add another character to that. A big surprise next week on Nitro. But for this week, your segment of the night, Steve, was it the main event, Steiners and Sting and Luger match? Was it Scott Hall showing up at the end of the show? Was it Horsemen and Rock and Rolls getting nearly 20 minutes? What was your favorite segment of the night? Uh, let me see here what I got. I, I, I went to Arn and Flair versus Rock and Roll. It seems like it's the only thing on the show that got the time it needed to be something, and it wasn't interrupted by other stuff. I know they were talking about Mongo and, and Kevin Green, and that's fine to me because you're trying to sell a pay-per-view, but that was my favorite segment. Uh, it would have easily, on paper, been the main event, just because I was looking forward to that match. But they shit all over it with Macho and the cluster of a finish. I like the ending, but a two-and-a-half-minute segment can be the, to- the, whole, the best part of the whole show. If you like the rock and rolls, you're going to be entertained by that match, and I was, so I'm going to go with that one. Yeah, for me, segment of the night, I'm just going to give it to that last little small, quick segment between Hall and Sting just because of the impact it had on me back then. It's not very long of a segment to really, it's kind of a cop-out because the show wasn't really all that good. I guess wrestling-wise, if I had to go with anything, it would be the Rock and Roll Express match. But I really, I mean, I don't know, at the end of the day, I just remember I waited all two hours just to get to that Scott Hall segment. So it meant the most. And it was cool seeing Sting uh, interrupt him and them go at it a little bit there. So that's my segment of the night as the ratings are in and coming on the heels of the Scott Hall angle, WCW rebounded this week on June 3rd with a 3.0 rating and a 5.0 share to Ross 2.3 rating and 3.6 share. WCW's hourly breakdown was 2.8 for the first hour and 3.2 for the second hour, so in the head-to-head battle, WCW won by nearly a full point against Raw. Too early to say, says the Meltz, but for TNT, the additional hour of Nitro is already a huge success because Nitro's first hour is doing approximately double of what Thunder and Paradise was doing in the same time slot prior. So, uh, yeah, it's a hit this week. WCW evens out to a 3.0 rating against Raw's 2.3. And like he said, when they were head-to-head, it was 3.2 to 2.3 so nitro did pretty well this week it did good the competition wasn't very good at all so it makes sense 
Yeah, and uh, Raw will bounce back, surprise, surprise, but uh, pretty soon we'll be creeping up on those 83 weeks. We'll be talking about, it, about that actually very soon. Uh, but the real winner yep. here for me, I just went Nitro simply because mm-hmm. the matches were shorter for the most part. There was a okay match with the Rock and Rolls and, and whatnot, and the Sting Hall close was really cool. Uh, over on Raw, nothing, really. I mean, unless you like Naked Gold Dust. <laughs> yeah, I went with Nitro as well. Uh, Raw was just extremely boring. And I, I, I want to make this point. I won't go into too much detail. But I, Nitro wasn't the best either. Like, it wasn't a very good show. It had good moments, but it wasn't a good, consistent show. But it still, still, it still feels fresh and new. Their production and their presentation it just seems like glossy. It looks shiny. It looks like a new toy. Uh, whereas WWF just looks so old and battered and very dark. Like the buildings are not lit well. The there's no stage to exist. It's just the raw logo, uh, big letters. So I mean, it just looks very depressing and old. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if that's I don't know if that's what's swaying me in these shows sometimes. It can because like you get to the end, they're like it's like both shows suck, but man, Nacho looks like a, a Ferrari and Raw looks like a Chevette. So yeah. um I mean it's just uh it can really sway you a lot. I think I think so. I think that's I think that's uh what makes the the uh the bad matches on Raw stick out even more. It's just there's nothing popping. It's, it's really it's depressing so depre- depressing at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. and like nitro it's just so flashy and, and bright and yeah. new and energetic it feels like, even the crowds feel energetic and active on nitro compared to raw so and that's really that's really going to be noticeable here soon most definitely steve want to thank you uh for another episode of monday warfare in the books as we continue on we're going to see the big surprise next week on wcw monday nitro and greater american bash around the corner and we know what's coming very very soon here in the world of professional wrestling, the battles really heat up. Part of the Monday Night War. At least one side does for a while. For a while, yeah. <laughs> yeah so True that. I can't wait to start. I can't wait to start talking about it. We're, we finally hit the meat and potatoes of this show. Yeah, and so uh, Steve, thanks for joining me again for Monday Warfare. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. And guys, don't forget. Uh, over on the Wrestling Memory Grenade, we've been doing 1993 in the WWF. That's been some fun stuff. All aboard the Lex Express. <laughs> over in, uh, yes, over on the grenade, the Lex Express. And here on Monday Warfare, it's the NWO right around the corner. So it's going to be really interesting to actually force myself to watch each and every segment and see how it lives up today here. <laughs> in the, in, in not, today's not very good. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Well, you, at, least, at least I've been warned. But uh, thank you guys again for listening to Monday Warfare. Again, we're back. To, it's, it's down to just one episode of Raw and Nitro every week. We're going to bring you a little news and notes heading into the shows, let you know what's going on behind the scenes as well. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. <laughs>